Greetings, Northlings, and welcome to Haunted Up North, a portmanteau of iPod and Broadcast, which is a podcast, and it's dedicated to the telling of real-life paranormal (laughs) experiences from the north of the UK. (laughs) Little titter there. I'm your host, Victoria, and I hope you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and most importantly, entertained by the classic work of fiction I'm about to tell you today. Hey. Hey, you there. Yes, you. Happy New Year. It's 2023, and we're looking more like the future the 1980s promised us by the minute. Kind of. Not really, but we'll get there one day, I'm sure. May I express an interest in your Christmas? Did you have a good one? Or at least, did you find some time to relax and engross yourself in the season somehow? Did you wrap yourself in tinsel and watch something heartwarming? Or something festively scary, which is often my Christmas film go-to of choice? Something like Black Christmas from the 1970s is an awesome film to watch in the dark with a fairy light or two. My festively scary film of choice this year, or last year, which is what it will be now, wasn't actually a film, it was a TV show that many of you will have been watching, and it wasn't really festive either, in Christmas terms, I mean, but it evoked that same sort of hauntingly dark atmosphere of nostalgia that the Victorians liked to latch onto at Christmas in particular, as they loved telling ghost stories during the festive period. It was like a thing at Christmas for the Victorians. They liked telling ghost stories. So basically, watching, listening to, or reading any scary thing at Christmas should really be considered a tradition in itself, because it's dark as well, and scary things like the dark, don't they? So the show I've been recently watching is Netflix's Wednesday, which is a spin-off of a character called Wednesday Adams from the, I guess it's quite old now, TV show and subsequent film franchise The Adams Family. And I'm sure, like I said, many of you listening will have watched it already. It's like a light-hearted gothic horror version of (laughs) Harry Potter, set in a boarding school for outcasts, or just people who are considered outside of the norm, like werewolves, mermaids, gorgons, and individuals like the Addams Family members who are kind of just spooky or kooky, and have perhaps misunderstood mystical powers. The boarding school is called Nevermore, and if you know, you know, and you'll know where I'm going to be going with this. But the boarding school is called Nevermore, which is a line from a very famous poem called The Raven by American author Edgar Allan Poe, who, in this make-believe Wednesday Adamsland, was Nevermore's most famous alumni, even though he obviously wasn't in real life. Not to ruin it for anybody. But because I've been watching this show that reveres one of the world's most favourite writers, and because I also went to New York this Christmas and found myself standing in front of 85 West 3rd Street in Greenwich Village, which is where Edgar Allan Poe once lived, or rather it's the location of where he once lived, because the actual building he lived in has since been demolished and only parts of the facade of the original building remain in its current existence as an NYU building. 
But there is an original banister inside that belonged to the original house Edgar lived in with his wife and mother-in-law, and NYU students have said that they've seen his ghost walking up and down alongside this banister. Quite scary, isn't it? I can't imagine Edgar Allan Poe walking. I just can't. He's got such an iconic face. I just can't imagine him walking around like a normal human. His infamy has led him to be considered quite a mystical individual, which is sort of reinforced by the history of his life, that he just seems otherworldly. So I can't imagine him walking up and down a banister. But anyway, because I found myself stood outside this building, of which I'll post some pictures of forthwith on social media where Edgar Allan Poe once lived, and also because I want to keep my own self-imposed tradition and dream of making the month of January International Ghost Storytelling Month, as mentioned previously in Hun number 6, a whole year ago, it will be now, and because I've been watching Wednesday Adams on Netflix, which talks a lot about Edgar Allan Poe, I decided this episode slot would be a great opportunity with which to tell you one of his scary tales. Okay. His right famous is Edgar. He's probably most commercially famous for his 1845 poem The Raven, a literary masterpiece he was only paid $9 for, which is quite surprising considering how well-known and recited it is, and he even penned parts of it at 85 West 3rd Street, the building I'm obviously obsessed with. The Raven was already a famous literary work before The Simpsons did an episode about it, I was talking to somebody the other day who said the only reason they'd ever heard of the play A Streetcar Named Desire is because it was mentioned in an episode of The Simpsons. I think famous works and people of greatness referenced in Simpsons episodes have probably saved a good deal of us from potential cultural embarrassment at highfalutin parties. <laughs> Not that I go to any of those, but thanks, The Simpsons. Thank you for everything that you've done for us and for saving us from embarrassment at pretentious parties. The Raven is a very satisfying composition to read out, so I reckon one day soon, perhaps on Patreon, I might read it out or perhaps get a guest in to do it. Get a guest on, even. Maybe I'll do it on here? I'll put some feelers out and see what I get back, okay? So a little bit about Edgar Allan Poe for your brains to digest before I read one of his stories. Edgar was American, from Boston, Massachusetts in fact. He was born there in 1809 and died in Baltimore in 1849, so he was 40 years old when he died. He was a writer, poet, editor and literary critic, most famous for his macabre poems and short stories. He's considered to be one of America's earliest practitioners of the short story, also inventor of the detective fiction genre and key contributor to the emerging genre of science fiction. He had a bit of a rough ride from the get-go. His dad, an actor named David Poe Jr., deserted him a year after he was born, and his English-born mum, Elizabeth Arnold, also an actor, died not long after, and I think his dad died very shortly after that. Edgar was split from his two siblings, Henry and Rosalie, and brought up by a wealthy tobacco merchant named John Allen, who was thought to have been his godfather, and that's how he came to bear the name of Allan Poe. 
It was a combination of his birth father's name and the name of his foster father, John Allen, although he was never formally adopted by him. The Allen family with Edgar moved to the UK in 1815 and Edgar was sent to Ayrshire in Scotland for his education. Then London a year later to study there and he remained in England until 1826 when he enrolled in the University of Virginia. So he went back home to the United States. However, due to mounting debts incurred from gambling, he found himself heavily out of pocket, so joined the United States Army instead, under the name of Edgar A. Perry, with a falsified age of 22 when he was only 18. What a naughty thing to do. It's during this time that he published his first collection of poetry, but it unfortunately wasn't a success and went largely unnoticed, as often these sorts of things do very early on in successful creative careers. That's what I like to tell myself anyway. By this time, Edgar's foster father, John Allen, had disowned him for various reasons, not necessarily to do with Poe himself, and by 1831 he'd purposefully got himself kicked out of the army, during which time, his time during the army I mean, he'd been based in various places across the east of North America, such as Charleston, South Carolina, New York and Baltimore. After being discharged from the army, he published some more poems and moved back to Baltimore, which is where his birth father was originally from, and where his aunt, cousin and brother resided, and really focused on crafting a proper career as a writer. Which he did. He was one of the first Americans to live by writing alone, and lots of writings were written, and many key life events happened during this time of being an American living by writing alone including marriage to his 13-year-old cousin, Virginia Clem. Hmm. No. There was an attempt to enter politics. There was alcoholism, which his elder brother Henry died from, and it was an affliction that Edgar himself fell victim to after the illness and subsequent death of Virginia. He afterwards attempted to court the poet Sarah Helen Whitman, but their engagement failed due to Poe's drinking and erratic behaviour. He was based primarily in New York from the early to mid-1840s onwards, though he frequently returned to Richmond, Virginia after resuming a romantic relationship with his childhood sweetheart, Sarah Elmira Royster. I think. Edgar Allan Pye... <laughs> Edgar, oh god, that would be a good name for a pie shop, wouldn't it? Edgar Allen Pies. Someone do it, if someone hasn't already done it. There's a fly. <laughs> Fruit fly, go away. Edgar Allen Poe died on October the 7th, 1849, and the manner of his death has been the subject of great mystery for over 170 years. He was only 40, like I said, when he died, which is quite surprising, not only because of having published so many literary works, but also when you look at photos of him, he seems a little bit older than that, probably because it was the 1800s and probably mostly because he'd been through so much and I guess alcoholism isn't very kind to the face. But in terms of his mysterious death, this is what happened. On September the 27th, 1849, Poe left Richmond. I presume he'd been visiting Sarah Elmira Royster. He left Richmond on his way home to New York City. 
However, on October the 3rd, he was found delirious in Baltimore at Ryan's Tavern, which was sometimes referred to as Gunner's Hall, by a printer named Joseph W. Walker, who sent a letter requesting help to Joseph E. Snodgrass, who was an acquaintance of Edgar's. The letter read, Dear Sir, There is a gentleman, rather the worse for wear, at Ryan's Fourth Ward Pulls, who goes under the cognomen of Edgar A. Poe, and who appears in great distress, and he says he is acquainted with you, and I assure you he is in need of immediate assistance. Yours in haste, Joseph W. Walker. Poe was dressed in shabby clothes that weren't his own, in an attire that was incredibly out of character, and the night before he died at the Washington College Hospital, he repeatedly called out the name Reynolds, though no one was able to successfully verify whom Poe was referring to. He was denied any visitors after he was taken into the hospital's care and kept in a prison-like room with barred windows in a section of the building that was reserved for drunk people. He never regained enough composure to explain how he'd come to be in that condition. His death was reported at the time as inflammation of the brain, which back then was probably code for alcoholism but the actual cause of Poe's death is still a mystery as no medical records or even his death certificate remain. There are a lot of theories out there as to how Edgar met his sorry end, including suicide, a drug overdose, alcoholism, hypoglycemia, brain disease, a brain tumour, heart disease, carbon monoxide poisoning, diabetes, enzyme deficiency, syphilis, apoplexy, epilepsy, meningeal inflammation, delirium tremens, dipsomnia and cholera. But the most interesting one, and when I say interesting I'm aware that this is at the expense of a human life, so please don't think the sentiment is lost on me, but for want of a better term, the most horrifically, shall we say, intriguing one, is that some believe he'd been a victim of cooping, which was a form of electoral fraud in the US where citizens were kidnapped and forced to vote several times over for a particular candidate. It's thought that cooping gangs would hold you hostage in a room, ply you with alcohol and physically assault you, intimidating you into submission until you did whatever they told you to do. In order to fool voting officials, they would change the outfits that their victims wore, donning them in various disguises such as wigs or hats, and... According to the testimony of John Joseph Moran, Edgar's attending physician... Poe was, along with a selection of other garments, wearing an old straw hat when he was admitted into hospital. Henry R. Reynolds was also one of the judges overseeing the Fourth World polls at Ryan's Tavern where Edgar was found, suggesting that if the cooping theory is true, this could have been who Poe was referring to when he called out the name Reynolds before he died. It's absolutely horrible, but it seems pretty plausible, unfortunately, considering he was wearing someone else's clothes and in such a dishevelled, delirious state. This cooping theory also has given rise to yet another possible notion that rabies could have been the medical cause of Edgar's death, which he could have contracted from rat bites during his suspected cooping days of captivity. 
His funeral was held at 4pm on Monday the 8th of October 1849, the day after he died in Baltimore, with few people attending the ceremony. His uncle Henry Herring provided a simple mahogany coffin, his cousin Nielsen Poe, the hearse, and John Joseph Moran's wife made his shroud. It was presided over by his deceased wife's cousin, the Reverend Clem, and attended by Snodgrass, lawyer and Poe's former university classmate, Zacchaeus Collinsley, his first cousin, Elizabeth Herring, and her husband, and former schoolmaster, Joseph Clark. It was reportedly, according to Sexton George W. Spence, Sexton, it was a dark and gloomy day, not raining, but just kind of raw and threatening, with the ceremony lasting as little as three minutes. He was buried in a coffin with no handles, nameplate, cloth lining, or even a cushion for his head. You'll probably have to read more about Edgar Allan Poe to understand the circumstances of his funeral and perhaps to delve a little deeper into his personality and what people may have thought of him, the good things and the bad. He was a very complicated man from the sounds of it and I doubt we have time, well I know we we don't have time to go into it today, but please do find yourself a spare few million minutes to educate yourself in the history of one of America's greatest writers. On October the 10th, however, 2009, 160 years after his death, may it give you some comfort to know that Edgar received a second Baltimore funeral complete with actors portraying Poe's contemporaries and other long-deceased writers and artists, each paying their respects and reading eulogies adapted from their writings about Poe. There was apparently a replica of Edgar's casket and wax cadaver, which is a fake dead body for those unfamiliar with the word cadaver. So that's a bit nicer for him, isn't it? Despite him having married his 13-year-old cousin. He's buried in Westminster Hall and Burying Ground, which is now part of the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, and there have actually been several ceremonies held between the day of his original funeral and the last one in 2009, where people have performed readings and raised money to get him a fancier headstone, and there's also been a reburial at one point to a different part of the graveyard, which was attended by Walt Whitman and Alfred Lord Tennyson. Actually, no, sorry, Walt Whitman attended it, but Alfred Lord Tennyson contributed a poem to the ceremony. When the graveyard that held the bones of Edgar's wife, Virginia, was destroyed, a biographer of Poe's named William Gill collected her bones and stored them in a box under his bed before she was eventually interred with her husband and mother during Edgar's reburial in 1875. Which is a bit creepy, isn't it? Though probably well-meaning. It all sounds like an Edgar Allan Poe story in itself. Speaking of stories, I've told you quite a lot about Edgar Allan Poe, haven't I? Far more than I meant to, and far less than I would like. Although, if this isn't your first rodeo with Haunted Up North, it won't be much of a surprise to you now, will it? So without further ado, of me talking at you, Haunted Up North is proud to present a rubbish dramatic reading of Edgar Allan Poe's 1843 short story and classic work of gothic fiction, The Telltale Heart, which is related by an anonymous narrator who's trying to convince the reader of their sanity whilst describing a murder they've committed. Observe the trigger warnings, people, in the episode description, and if you're okay with those, please sit back, listen up, and enjoy 
Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, published on none other than the month of January. International Ghost Storytelling Month in the year 1843. Quite scary, isn't it? The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern. All closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern, cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. 
and every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watcher's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on, steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's Who's there? there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watchers in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh no, it was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain. Because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim, and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, 
I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until, at length, a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker, and louder and louder, every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder, and I thought the heart must burst. And now, a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbour. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer, when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. I then took up three planks 
from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Haha. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labours, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbour during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them, at length, to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat above the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of my victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chattered of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until, at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? 
I foamed. I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all, and continually increased. It grew louder. 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 And still the men chatted pleasantly, and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God. No, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. The End Have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? What a perfectly worded sentence that is. I don't pretend to be an expert in psychiatry, because I'm not, but I've watched and read a lot of true crime, particularly documentaries and texts. 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 Books. <laughs> is a better word. Documentaries and books detailing the lives and criminal acts of serial killers, and there do seem to be some patterns of euphoria that correlate with moments where... Not that I am in any way a serial killer, or just a killer, although that's exactly the kind of thing a serial killer, or just a killer, would say, isn't it? Um, moments where I myself have reached a stage of momentary existence, or even just a period of existence where you're caught in some kind of loop of either overworking or obsessing over something that makes you act in a way that could be perceived by others as not quite mentally right, or as sound as you usually seem, but when you're in that state, you believe it's intrinsic to your survival somehow to remain inside it, and that everyone else's statement to the contrary is just wrong, and that they can't possibly understand this heightened plane of existence you're in, that you feel, quite mistakenly sometimes perhaps, has brought you to life in ways that you feel you can't possibly let go of. I mean this on a comparatively innocent level to that of a killer. I mean it more in the sense of when your adrenaline is constantly peaking. Like in my case when you're writing for a deadline, or you've become tangled up with a project that you just don't want to stop working on, despite the fact you haven't eaten all day, and you really do need to go to bed at some point. That intenseness of being that if you carry on down that path for too long, you could just about perhaps lose your mind, on some level anyway, because your senses are in an overload of mental energy, and you think it's the awesome kind of energy, when really it could turn into a really bad kind of energy, if you're not careful enough to come down from it in time. You probably sat there thinking, oh yeah, or oh no, <laughs> about me right now, but that's the kind of thing I think about when I read that sentence. I believe it's perfect for representing on paper a certain type of experience that I've personally had on a relatively standard level, and I think Edgar's done a great job there, conveying to the layperson the kind of sensations the killer in the story is having throughout, and enabling the reader to relate to it more authentically, if you see what I mean. 
But obviously it would be very silly of me to try and diagnose the afflictions that the killer in the Telltale Heart is suffering from, because, like I said, I'm not an actual psychologist. But like I've also said before on Patreon about a story that I recently read out on there called Lost Hearts by M.R. James, Victorian-era writers are amazing at detailing what they perceive to be the inner workings or observations of disturbed minds in their works of fiction, which I guess you could label as an early form of criminal profiling. This hiding a body under the floorboards and chatting with police as they walk above it is very Dennis Nilsson, isn't it? I'm also intrigued by Edgar Allan Poe addressing the conundrum of killers no matter how mentally unstable or unwell they are, still managing to employ a certain amount of poison calculativeness in order to hide a body, or just outright lie in people's faces so well, and even pre-plan their criminal acts with such patience as the fictional killer does in this tale. But I guess that's psychopathy for you, isn't it? Whether it's inherited, or nurtured, or what not. But anyway, there's lots more I could say about that, but I think it might, <laughs> I think this episode might go on too long if I do say more about that. And I might also look stupid because I'm not that clever. The more I talk, the more wrong I'm bound to be. But it was a very thought-provoking tale. There wasn't really a ghost in this story, but there was an unsettling illusion of the supernatural as played through the mind of the main character in the form of that sinister heartbeat heard only by the killer themselves. If you want to hear more stories of this nature, press play on Hun number 6 entitled The Signalman by Charles Dickens, which was last January's international ghost storytelling effort, or sign up to Patreon to hear me read such bedtime stories as The Authentic Narrative of the Ghost of a Hand by Sheridan Le Fanu, In the Dark by Ian Nesbitt, A Vignette by M.R. James, and of course Lost Hearts also by M.R. James. I can't remember if there are any more on there. However, this I do know. There will be more bedtime stories available to listen to on Patreon within the coming months, along with other real-life paranormal tales from places and people all over the world. That's the world. All over the world. I'm going to bed now. I hope you're doing the same. Unless it's lunchtime or something. In which case, don't be so lazy. Just joking. Do what you want. Who cares? I don't. Thanks for listening everyone, and for letting me inject a bit of American gothic fiction into your day, or night. I hope you found this story to be a good one, and that you were suitably entertained by it. Long live the writings of Edgar Allan Poe and all who haunt them, and may their power forever compel you to never presume that I am in fact a serial killer, just because I said that thing earlier that makes me sound quite a lot like a serial killer. See you later. Don't have nightmares. Bye. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in.